Welcome to episode number 11 on the My Story Podcast. The My Story Podcast features interviews with leaders, influencers, and entrepreneurs who tell us their story and the life lessons they've learned along the way. Hi, my name's Conrad Weaver, and I'm your host for the show. I'm a filmmaker, entrepreneur, storyteller, and I'm really looking forward to my summer vacation next month. It's going to be a road trip, and I can't wait to tell you all about it. Hey, if you're a regular listener, you probably noticed I missed a couple of weeks on the podcast. Well, life got busy, which is a good thing. And last week, we celebrated with our son when he graduated from film school with a Bachelor's of Science degree in film production from Full Sail University. And we had an exciting time down in Orlando. And I want to say congratulations, Spencer. You're making us proud. So it was really fun to be there and to be a part of that. Today's show is an interview I did several months ago with a friend of mine, Bruce McMahon. Bruce is the president of CMA Purchasing Company. It's a very unique company based in Frederick, Maryland. And he's going to share some of the things that has helped them become a success. I think you'll find our conversation interesting, and if you're like me, you'll learn something from it. But first, a word from our sponsor for today's episode. Furnace Hills Coffee Company roasts amazing coffee. They have a great story too. I'll have to tell you, once you drink a cup of coffee from Furnace Hills, I promise you'll never want coffee from the big name brands again. Why? Their beans are sourced directly from great farmers, and it's roasted fresh. You order it today, and you'll get coffee beans that have been roasted this week, maybe even the same day that it's shipped to your door. The other cool thing about Furnace Hills Coffee Company that I love is their mission is to employ people with developmental disabilities. Their chief roaster is Erin. She has Down syndrome and even has a coffee blend named after her. And just for the My Story podcast listeners, when you order from FurnaceHillsCoffee.com, Use the coupon code MYSTORY, all one word, and get 25% off your order. Check it out. It's special coffee roasted by special people. FurnaceHillsCoffee.com And now here's my interview with Bruce McMahon. So today I'm in the office with Bruce McMahon. Bruce, Bruce and I have been friends for I don't know how long. It's been 15 years. 15 years or so, yeah. yeah. Bruce, tell me a little bit about what you do. What's your business and who you are and what do you do? Okay. Well, my business, we're called the FF&E Purchasing Company. And what we do in a nutshell is manage the whole process of designing, laying out, and purchasing all the stuff that goes inside different types of facilities. So Hmm. we have a government division. Um, That division, you know, we may be installing furniture and carpet and everything that goes into a barracks at a military base in Japan for Mm -hmm. the U.S. government or an office facility on a base somewhere else. I manage the uh, commercial uh, division, which we do primarily hotels and resorts. Mm -hmm. So right now, let's say um, we're getting ready to start a project in Boston. It's um, a four-star hotel that when we are done will be a seven-star hotel. Wow. Very, very, very high-end. All the furniture. I didn't really had seven stars. I didn't either. <laughs> That's what they're telling us. You know, the, the design firms out of London, the company that owns 
the hotel chain is out of Hong Kong. Most of the, they only have three hotels in the States. Most of them are in Europe and the Far East, but everything is custom. The carpets, the, the wall coverings aren't, but they're very expensive. All the fabrics are expensive. All and you the guys furniture arrange all that custom. or coordinate all that? To, to Absolutely. All that yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's why owners hire us. We're almost like the general contractor for the fixtures, furniture, and equipment that goes inside the facilities. So in a nutshell, that's what we do. The company is 31 years old, was started by my father-in-law and my mother-in-law, and myself and my brother-in-law bought them out in 2008. They retired. We had been in the business since uh, the mid-90s, and then we've kind of taken it over and, and grown it. So one of your main contracts is government contracts? That's one of your main focuses? Government contracts. In the beginning, that's all we did. Um, even really up until maybe five years ago, all we did was government. And then I started getting a little restless, seeing how dysfunctional our government was being and have, had become and recommended that we start diversifying outside of the government. I mean, I looked at what we did, our core competencies and you know you can export that really into any market segment you want it's just that we had developed a specialty in using government contracts so we just decided okay we're going to start another division redid all our branding all our marketing pieces new website everything and um, just started pounding the pavement starting off small with small very unsexy jobs that nobody else wanted and we did them and we did them really well and just over time we have brought on clients a lot of word of mouth and yeah i mean so that's now kind of a risk to do that right after you guys were kind of comfortable in that government it was zone. but it was but it wasn't i just didn't feel comfortable having all our eggs in the government sector just because you know, we were we were seeing more and more funding sources that were via continuing resolution. And when you do that, when they don't have appropriated dollars, people don't spend. They don't they don't really start new projects. They just do. They just maintain what they have. And and I didn't know where it was going to go. But I mean, it was going on for a number of years in a row. And I was nervous and I just didn't think it was smart. We had done a really good job of diversifying within the government sector. I mean, at one point, you know, all we did was small military, like officers clubs on military basis. We didn't do any office type work or uh, we didn't do any lodging or anything like that. So we really diversified within the government sector, which was good. But but then we kind of stopped. And the next logical step was to diversify outside of the government market. So it was a risk, but it was one that we really didn't have any choice. So how was it going from doing these officers clubs or, you know, kind of sexy looking stuff to kind of plain offices or whatever, you know, to start out low on the bottom end? The government government facilities aren't, you know, the sexiest (laughs) out there, but um, government contracting is very, there's just a lot of rules. I mean, you have to operate in that box and you and you can't go outside of it. Or you um, get dinged or you get 
or, yeah, or, 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 I mean, to find someone else to do their do the job. Then, well, they have very strict contracting rules and procurement rules, so everything is competitively bid. You can develop relationships, you can know people, but at the end of the day, you have to have the right kind of contract, and you have to be low bid. So, you lose a lot of projects to people because they were just lower than your number, and that's, that's not always the best solution for the government. On the commercial side, we do deals all the time where we're not competing against anybody. It's, it, it's add-on business. We, we have a ownership group out of Southern California. We did a large hotel for them in Orlando, 400-room hotel, uh, two years ago. Since then, they've had us do a winery in Texas, a winery in South Cal uh, Southern California, and now um, another hotel in Orlando. So you can develop relationships, you perform well, under-promise and over-deliver, and they, use, they continue to use you. So talk about that, under-promise and over-deliver. I think that that's kind of the mantra that I try to do with my business. I, you know, I, I come in to your company and I help produce a video and I, but then I want to really just knock it out of the park and I'll do things that the client didn't expect or so how, what about that is kind of makes you successful? Well, when we're, especially when we're trying to do business with a new client for the first time, you have the stereotypical salesman that just says yes, right? And it doesn't matter what the question is or what the requirement is, what the demand is, yes. And we just don't do that. If, if let's say they have a very, a budget that is just not gonna work for what they want to accomplish, we just tell them up front. You you know, do you lose business that way or, or potential business? We, we haven't. No, we haven't. I think people appreciate the honesty. If their schedule's very tight, we can say, you know, this is a really tight schedule. We may be able to do it, but we may not. We're not, and we're not just going to go in there and say, yeah, we're going to do it. I, again, I would rather be honest up front and really lose a job than say yes and make them miss screw their opening up, day. Screw it up for them. Yeah. And they, you will, not only will they not use you again, they will tell other people in their network not to use you. Right. So I'd rather just not get the business to begin with. Run. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a relatively small industry that we're in with, with hotel owners and people talk. Mm. So we would rather go in, just be completely honest up front. I mean, we'll be aggressive. We'll be aggressive with budgets. We'll be aggressive with schedule. But we're not going to promise something that we deep down inside know is, is not What's an doable. example of a, of, of a client or a, or a deal you guys did where you really – you under-promised, but then you just knocked it out. Well, we had, I'll use this 400-room property down in Orlando. They had an incredibly aggressive schedule. And when they brought us on, they had already worked with another procurement company um, and fired them. So they were behind the eight ball from a time frame standpoint. Um, we went down and met with them. The next day was our beach week, and uh, the first week in August. 
So I worked literally the entire week. I was sitting in the sand underneath an umbrella <laughs> with my laptop, doing, you know, doing stuff, emailing everything. We put the whole thing together. Um, and we knocked it out of the ball. I mean, we, we used our resources and our contacts to provide what they wanted really actually a little under their budget and we got it to site before we had promised we would. Now it ends up that their construction ended up really falling behind. And so we got it there, they weren't ready to, they couldn't install it. Okay. But thankfully they had, we worked with them the whole time. They had ballrooms where they could store everything. And the, the property just, we just went to the grand opening in November of last year. And so this was when I did this August two years ago. <laughs> wow. So I, I think that's an example of, you know, where we we did under promise and over. Do you think in, in business generally that's not the rule? That's not the standard? Should be. It should be, but, but no, I don't think it is. Why is that? I, I think people, especially if you're a new business or if you're breaking, trying to break into a new industry, you just need that opportunity and, and you just need that first door open. And I think a lot of people will say anything, do anything to, to get that. And that's just not the approach we've taken over the years. Um, just because it ends up, it, it can end up doing more harm than good. Hmm. And for me, it's not, I'm not willing to roll the dice to to do the opposite over promise right. and undeliver under deliver right. so and it sounds like you've made you know been a success at at delivering those kind of deals and, and doing that yeah we've thankfully since um since the company's been in business so long we have very very strong relationships with suppliers and so it was relatively easy to leverage those relationships from one market segment to another. And really, in, in our business, to a certain extent, you're only as good as your suppliers. And you know, we're not manufacturing anything. We're not importing anything. We're managing. Uh, we do do design work, but for the most part, we're managing. And if your supplier doesn't deliver, then you fail. So that way, you, you, you have to have good relationships with suppliers you can trust. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. and you, And, there's suppliers out there that'll tell you anything. And so sometimes you learn the hard way. And the other thing is, is treating them right, treating suppliers right, uh, paying them on time. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a fine line between what your client wants and what's actually fair. And sometimes we didn't feel what the client want was fair. And so we just paid, say, to have some stuff replaced. Hmm. They would, the, the example was they, they claimed that it came in damaged. Well, it had been there for six months. Nobody ever said anything about it. And we didn't feel right about going back to the manufacturer six months later and say, hey, this came in damaged. Nobody mentioned anything. It was sitting there for six months. Exactly. And, yeah. and, but we wanted to please the customer, uh, the client, and it was a good client. So we just, we just ordered more replacements and paid for them out of our pocket. Wow. I mean, you, you do that kind of thing for, for good clients. And you kept the, yeah, you kept a good relationship yeah. with a good client. Yeah. And we told the manufacturer what was going on. They even sold it to us at 
25% of what the original cost was because we were willing to. So it's a win-win. It's a win, a win sure. for everybody. It's not that much money out of our pocket. We didn't ask the manufacturer to do something for free. The client got stuff replaced that really probably they damaged. Every, everybody wins there. Yeah. So Wow. So so you didn't grow up in this business. No. So tell me no. about your your young, I mean, where you grew up, because you have an interesting story just from your growing up years and what your parents were involved in. And so talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I, I was born in Texas and to a family of uh, oil men. Um, when I was in first grade, we moved to London. Uh, my dad was transferred. We lived in London for three years. And my dad was the manager for kind of the North Sea. He would go out on oil drilling platforms mm, and oil wow. rigs in the North Sea. And his company made a lot of the equipment that these things would use. Then he started making trips to the Middle East. And he would be gone sometime for a month or six weeks at a time. And it was really a struggle for my mom to, you know, with a, I was in, first grade, second grade, my brother's two years younger than me, and she's there in London by herself. So they ended up moving us over to Dubai, um, and we were there for a couple of years. And it was pretty and much at that time just a, just a big sandlot, There right? was nothing there. There was nothing there. Um, there's a very small, tight-knit American community around a school, and everybody kind of lived in that gen general area. But other than that, um, there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken, and that was it. <laughs> yeah. KFC now, everywhere. You know? Now it's just, I mean, look at it. Have you, you know, been there crazy. recently? I, I flew through there three years ago on the way to Israel, and but we didn't. We just stayed in the airport. But it was really interesting seeing what has what it's become from the air, sure. especially. And we lived right on the beach in I mean, the some area. Some of the tallest buildings it, in the world yeah, are there. Yeah. Right? On Jamera Beach, that's all where all these buildings are. That's where we lived, and wow. our house was was long gone. But yeah, and then we we moved back to the state. So so I I had done a lot of traveling and everything. And what was that like moving from you know first from Texas to to London? I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember those oh, days yeah. in London? Yeah, you learn to adapt. I learned to adapt at at an early age to make friends. To, I mean, and then there's funny things like I, we live close to a park, Regent's Park in London, and I was in the playground playing with some other young kids, English kids, and they started asking me where I was from, and I, and I said, America. One of them said, oh, how do you say hello in American? <laughs> <laughs> and so I went, oh, the way They're like, oh, wow. You know, um, but yeah, you learn to adapt. You learn to make friends. You learn to assimilate to other cultures and other environments. And, and I think that served me well um, in, in later years. And as I was, um, you know, going through my career and moving, uh, you know, doing different jobs at different companies and whatnot. Now you went back to Texas then, how old were you then? I started sixth grade in, in, in Houston yeah, and, and went, uh, you know, grew up, went to college there and then moved to DC in 87. What brought you to DC? And, uh, well, I had a degree in architecture, and in at that time in Texas, you know, we were kind of in the middle of a banking crisis, and um, there was just no 
building of new buildings or design of new buildings going on. And the real estate market, commercial real estate market in D.C. was still strong. And so I got a job with uh, what, what was then one of the largest architecture firms in the country um, in the D.C. office and knew that I wanted to do something a little different. I, I always liked development, real estate development. And so after I worked there, I went to work for one of the largest general contractors in the country now and building office buildings in downtown D.C. and the air, in immediate area. Then went back to business school for my MBA, which I would highly recommend to anybody with a technical undergraduate degree because you just don't get basic business skills and knowledge and, and learning. You're so focused on the technical side of it. And so having kind of those two, architecture and MBA, really helped me. After that, I, I worked for a couple of companies as doing mostly commercial real estate consulting. And that's what I was doing uh, when, when I moved to CMA and kind of helped take over the family business and, and grow it. So, Wow. So it's a very kind of a varied path yeah. that you, you've been on. Yeah. And how has yeah. that really shaped who you are today? Well, I think spe specific to business, and we have this on our website on my bio, so I can say, hey, I'm, I've been the architect. And, and I understand the design process. I've been the contractor. I understand the renovation construction process. I spent a couple of years at MCI Telecommunications uh, helping, doing corporate type real estate work. And then I worked for Roger Stahlbach's former company uh, doing the same thing, but as a consultant. So I understand the real estate portion of it as well. And really all those things are involved in what we do here at CMA. And so I can kind of put on the different hats depending on the circumstances of the project or in the meeting. And I, th I think that adds a lot of value to the project team as a whole. So what are some of the biggest challenges you guys face as a company, as a business, in the business world? What are some of those challenges and how do you approach that? Well, the biggest challenge recently was when we decided to diversify and branch out just getting that first project and so how did you do that we did some trade shows we got really lucky with a national brand and who was not really working with anybody um, in our industry and that's where we got our first break and we just covered them up with service I mean, we just went so above and beyond that they couldn't not like us, you know. <laughs> they couldn't not be pleased. They were going to work with you one way or the yeah. other. Yeah, right? <laughs> and and you know they wow. were small little mom and pop places that had super tight budgets. It could you know twenty rooms or less. Sometimes it's stuff that that the other people you know didn't want. Mm -hmm. Um, but we just did it and we made the best of it and, and it just kind of grew from there. And one thing I'll say is never underestimate the power of luck hmm. because I have been so lucky really in my life. You know, as a Christian, I, I, I view it as, as being blessed, but 
never underestimate the power of that. It's just amazing how many times I've just walked into something, had no idea it was there, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity, and, and you pursue it, and it turns out to be something. The challenge is to realize when it's luck and not talent, you know, <laughs> right, right. and it's like, cause your head gets big. Sure. And all of a sudden you think I can't do anything wrong. Mm. I mean, every, every, you know, Have so, you had those moments where it just like, you just sucked. <laughs> and, oh yeah. And the job yeah. went down the toilet. I mean, we, we've, there's always those projects that just nothing goes right. And it doesn't really matter what you do. And, and, and it's not necessarily anybody's fault. It just doesn't go right. And then you go through seasons of you just can't win a project. You know, you're coming in second every time, every time, every time. So what's going to be wrong? depressing? Be, it does. It, yeah. it gets you start second guessing yourself or we, you know, then you start cutting your fee. Is that a smart? Well, a smart move? I, I think it depends on the circumstances and it depends how much you cut. I know when we were transitioning from doing the say two star type properties to try to go to the three, three and a half, four star properties. The very first couple of projects that we submitted proposals on, we went in with a very, very aggressive fee. And in one instance, we were asked point blank if we had enough money in it to do the project, if we were awarded, because you're way lower than everybody else. Wow. And we told them we did, and we had told them in our proposal that, you know, we're, we want, we're trying to re establish a relationship with you and we're being very aggressive on this. And we, we didn't get the job. Wow. Despite that. And despite, did they tell you why? They said that on that one, uh, that it was a very, very tight schedule. The company that hiring the F, the purchasing company, it was actually their first project with that, with that owner. So it was a new owner to them and they just didn't want to have then a new FF and E company at the same time with a tight schedule. Personally, we, we didn't think the schedule was that tight. You know, we, we, we put a schedule together that fit into their schedule that was very doable, but you know, I can understand that we, we get manufacturers coming to us all the time. It's the same kind of situation. You know, they're just looking for that one open door, that one break. And in fact, we had to tell a couple of, couple of people who've been calling on us for a while um, last week that we weren't using them on a project for that very same reason, that we didn't want, it was our first project with an owner, it was a tight schedule, and we wanted to use somebody we knew that was going to perform for and us because we'd work with them. The, the relationships were there and everything. Right. So I get it. It you know it goes on both sides yeah. of the uh, of the the story. So just you just can't get down, even though you you know you you hit a dry spell. It it, it does kind of affect you in a way because I've had a couple of bids here recently that didn't pan out, and it's like, okay, what am I not? What am I missing here? Right. You know, am I too high? Am I too low? Am I, you know, what, what's the problem? And, and actually the one client that I was pretty sure I was going to get the job because they were, I was, you know, been back and forth with them several times and they really felt that it was, it was moving the right direction. And at the last, at the end, it was a no. So I ended up, you know, I ended up sending them a, a thank you gift. Oh, wow. I said, Hey, thanks for letting me bid on your project. Right. 
you know, just, I didn't know if anything would come for that. Maybe I thought, well, kind of behind the scenes, my thinking was, if they see that, they're going to say, well, who'd that come from? Right, right. You know, oh, that guy that, you know, we turned down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we should use him next right, time, you right, know. Right, right, That was kind yeah, of my thinking. But uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'll have um, to keep that one in the back of my mind. <laughs> I didn't win it, but I sent him a gift anyway, so. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? So thinking about business and life, what is success? Yeah, there's, deep here. There's a couple of... <laughs> There's a couple of ways to approach that. I mean, you know, our society views success primarily as money and things. I, I think I view success as being able to do the right thing. As a business owner, providing a, a good work environment for your employees, taking care of your employees, having employees that are very loyal. We, we have several people here that have been with us over 15 years. And I think that's and they're young and they're younger, they're not older. What's so, the what's the secret to that to your success there of having good employees that stay? I think because we're re, we're small, we th there's really no office politics. There's no writing people's coattails. There's it, we're, we all are here to get the job done, and everybody helps everybody, and we we've. You know, we've had more employees. We've had less employees over time. We've had times when the mix of staff was not that good in terms of personalities. And, I remember and there was conflict. I was first starting in the business. I was thinking about going to business. I took you out to lunch one day. I was just like, wanted to pick your brain about business. Okay. And, and you walked in the restaurant and you looked at me and you pointed to me and said, don't ever hire anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I went through a period where we only had 25 people or so. So it's not even really that big. But the people part of it was definitely the worst part for me. Hmm. I'm not. Why is that? Is this well, because every week somebody was coming in my office and it would be, well, you know, so-and-so didn't say hi to me this morning on the way in. It's like, really? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and. So I'm more of a analytical person, more of a strategy person, and more of a managing processes, not not people. Mm -hmm. That's not my strength. And you have people here that do that, that are the kind of the people? Yeah, I mean, back, well, that was one reason I realized at that point that I needed to hire an operations manager to help manage, you know, the different groups, um, the different departments and everything that we had. And I've learned. I, I went to classes. I hired a um, consultant to, to help me develop those skills. And, and it, it does get easier, but what had happened is we grew so fast. We had a period where we grew so fast that it was all I could do to keep my head above water. And, and we were hiring quickly, and we just didn't put the policies and procedures in place to help manage the the human resources do you think and hiring right is more i mean hiring the right people is more important than hiring the best people yes yeah absolutely i mean if you you can get somebody with great skill great knowledge and everything but if they if their personality type creates a caustic environment it, it's not good and we did have that happen 
a very talented, very, you know, very experienced person. But uh, we've had it happen in a couple of times. And for future business owners out there, this is going to sound a little harsh, but get rid of them as soon as as soon as you realize it's a problem. Do not wait. Do not put it off. Do not think that they'll change, even if you have a couple of conversations with them. and Because it'll cost you in the long run. It will. And it'll cost you good people if it gets bad enough. And I learned from that because I, I didn't, I don't like, you don't, nobody likes firing people. Sure. You know, um, especially people that, that are good at what they do, mm -hmm. just not good from a relationship standpoint, right. you know, within the company. And, and I learned my lesson the hard way. And so when it happened again, I acted quicker and mm -hmm. took care of it. But it's, it's, it, at the end of the day, still, it's not fun. It, it's not even to fire somebody for cause. It's just not fun. Right. You know, right. It's, and some Jody's have my wife, Jody's having to learn cause she's an assistant principal now and she has to do the hiring and firing and she had to let someone go here a while back. And she said, you know, it was hard. Yeah. It was someone she liked. Yeah. Or even when it's somebody you don't like, it's still hard, <laughs> you know, cause you know, it's a, it's affecting, gonna affect their family. And, but yeah, you, you really kind of have to focus on what's best for the organization sure. as a whole. And, um, and, and so going back it. to kind of talking about success, what are some things that young entrepreneurs, leaders, influencers should do to set themselves up for success? You know, I, I would say put in your dues. Don't, especially starting out, do anything you can and everything you can. If you're in a larger company, move around. Move around, work in different departments, really understand how the business works, how the industry works. Never think that something is beneath you. Oh yeah, no, hold it. I have a degree and blah, blah, blah. I, I shouldn't be doing that. You know, that's beneath me, I'm beyond that. Boy, that is so important. It, I mean, the, the more that you learn about how a business operates, how an industry operates, you're, you're setting the groundwork for being um, successful in the business world that way because you understand it. You, you can view things from different perspectives, from a marketing perspective, an accounting perspective, a sales perspective, an operations perspective. You know, you, if you can get just a well-rounded background, it'll really help you when, you when you're the leader. You'll understand and you'll know when you're in above your head. I mean, when I hired the operations manager, it's like, why didn't I realize this sooner? And bringing that person in, and it was the right person, changed everything. Wow. Changed it for the better. And even the people that she was managing were happier because she could provide them something that I couldn't. I would say that's another thing. Realize when you don't have the skill set or the talent to do something, don't think you have to do or can do at all because you can't. Right. Very, very, very few people can do that. Right. And when you find yourself in a situation where you need somebody else, find the right person and do it. You will you will never regret it if you get the right person. I know in making, you know, I make movies and and the one thing that I just really am bad at is is uh, editing audio and post-production. And so now I'm making a podcast <laughs> right. you know, where I'm editing audio. <laughs> yeah. But I realize in, on the movie side, I'm just not good at it. And I, I do it, you know, when I don't have the budget to hire 
you know, a guy that costs you know, 200 bucks an hour to do the editing, I do it myself. But I realize that this is something I really need help with. Yep. And the experience, you'll get better at it the right. more you do it. So maybe my podcast editing right. will help me get better at <laughs> right, right, <laughs> editing right. the movie audio. But right. I know, you know, eventually I just I just want to outsource that and get someone else yeah. that's better at me right. than doing it. And right. even like doing stuff with uh, graphics and animation and stuff, these young guys, they grew up with After Effects and they know all this stuff and I don't even want to learn that. Right. Because I'll hand it off to them and they'll just yeah, whip it yeah. out in a couple hours. Right. And hire, yeah, hire, hire a specialist. Yeah. yeah. So what should a young person not do? Mm. It's, been, it's been a long time since I've been a young person. So, <laughs> I, you know, I would say don't just chase the almighty dollar. So live your life with purpose? Yeah, and, and especially, you know, just starting out, I think people can be tempted by money versus the the actual job description and the work they'll be doing. Um, and and so and I mean that's hard, especially working out. You come out of school or whatever, you've got some debt and everything. You, you know you want to you want to be making a good living, but the money will come if you do the right things in the beginning and 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 lay the groundwork for being successful later on. So I didn't have that. That didn't wasn't an issue for me because I got out of school with a degree in architecture and went to work in 1987 making seventeen thousand five hundred dollars a year <laughs> working in downtown DC as a wow. staff or, you know right out of school architect. That's all you could get. I mean, maybe you could get nineteen, but wow, yeah, that, yeah. There, there was. But now with computer science degrees and, um, you know, engineering degrees. I mean, I hear a kid starting at seventy to $90,000 right out of school, which just blows me that's away. That's crazy. Yeah. It blows me away. Wow. So, but that's um, not the norm. That, that's not everybody. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I, I've prepared my son who's graduating in May not to be making that kind of money right <laughs> What's out his of degree school. In? He has a degree in environmental studies, uh, uh, and double major, um, and political science with a minor in economics. Okay. So he wants to go into environmental policy, okay. maybe go to law school. So that's why he's moving to Denver. There's a lot of opportunity out there. Yeah, and that. he just, he's a mountain guy. He loves Denver. He was skiing out there during Christmas break. He's done some hiking out there and, and past summers, loves it. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? You get there's a lot of places, worse places than Denver you can move. You can sure. guarantee mom and I will be visiting you whenever we're invited right. if you move out there. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm I'm really excited to see what, what happens with So that. a couple just a couple more questions, we'll wrap it up. What are some of the life lessons that you've learned over the years that have really guided you along the way? One thing, especially at when you're the leader uh, of an organization is that your your words matter and what you say to people and how you say it matters i never i always underestimated that portion of it just because the way i'm wired that i could say something to somebody in a tone or manner that to me was just kind of matter of fact but to everybody else was because of where I was in the company was perceived as negative. And it took me a while to 
to learn that really, you know, what you say and how you say it matters, and it affects people's lives for the for the positive and and negative. Um, and then just letting p people know that they matter, hmm. that that what they do here at the office and even outside the office matters, and that you know we we wouldn't be the company we are without all the people that are out there and, and their different personality types, their different experiences, their different expertise and talents. And I don't think I tell them enough. And, and I, so I've been focusing on that, of letting them know, you know, you really, you really knocked it out of the park on, you know, with the so-and-so last week or, you know, Chris, I really, what you do here matters. It really, we couldn't do what we do without your input. I mean, I don't think there's anyone who doesn't want to hear that. There isn't. There isn't. The thing is, is that for my personality type, I don't need that, and, and I don't get it. I mean, the, really, the you're only... you're the boss, and you're the... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you know, and the employees walked in here, you know, every other week and said, Bruce, you're doing a great... You know, I was like, oh, you brown nose, or whether you want to raise <laughs> or something, you know. Right. So that it just doesn't happen. The only place I get it is at the gym, my trainer. Man, great workout today, Bruce. Yeah, you did. Man, you you killed it. And he he could be making it up, but it feels good. Sure. And and I'm not knocking, you know, any any but you know, my kids are gone. So right. they don't when we talk, I said, Dad, I love you, I really appreciate it. But you know, that's um so it's it's kinda like when you don't get it and you don't need it, it's not a natural thing to give it. Mm -hmm. But you really need to, if you're wired that way, you really need to be aware of it and you need to something you need to focus on and become better at. That's good. And I'm trying to do that. Yeah, I, I kind of had had a, went to, uh, well, it was the um, the summit that Willow Creek does. Okay. Yeah, leadership summit. And that was, yeah, the leadership summit. And that was one of the presentations in the summit um, in August. And it really spoke to me. And I was like, yeah, that's me. And I, I really need to focus on that um, over the next year, so. Very cool. So what's the next big thing for you? Next big thing for me? Well, we're moving, we're downsizing. You know, we've entered a different part of our life. Our youngest is graduating college. And so uh, we're selling our house. We're, we're moving into a townhouse. And both of our children will, our daughter lives in Texas. You know, Nick will go to Denver, hopefully. We're in Texas, is she? She lives in Tyler which okay. is a couple hours east of Dallas. Okay. So, so yeah, my daughter works at a um, kind of a boutique uh, Italian restaurant and has just decided that she wants to go to culinary school. Okay, so cool. She's going to start that. I don't know if it's in the summer or in the, in the fall. And her, her the, the owner of the restaurant really... So you like being empty nesters? Love it. Love our kids and everything, but we love being empty nesters where, you know, we been in this house for 21 years, you know, raised the kids there and all that. And it's just time to downsize to something that's smaller, that has less maintenance. And we want to be able to get on the boat and go when we can, you know, I mean, for a month or however long. Sure. The boat is um, the type that, I mean, we, we could go to the Bahamas in it. Okay. It's, it's, yeah. it's um, you know, that type of boat. You can live on it. It's like a it's like an RV on the water, okay, basically. Sure. And so we want to be able to do that. 
and not have to worry about, you know, mowing the yard or, and, right, and our house right. is 95 years old. So something always needs to be fixed, <laughs> always need to be kind of imagine something that old. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even a house of mine, my house is 15 years old and there's always something that needs to yeah, be worked on. Yeah. So we're looking forward to being in something brand new and, uh, you know, with neighbors right around us so that we can go and don't have to worry about anything really. So yeah, that that's that's what's next. It's a big, it's going to be a big lifestyle change, and um, just making the decision to move from a house you've lived in that long is a very emotional thing. And um, so once we made the decision, our townhouse is is hadn't even they haven't even broken ground on it yet. So we're going to have to live in an apartment. <laughs> then move over there and but we once you made that we made that decision it's like okay let's just do it let's sell the house and and we'll live in an apartment or whatever but let's you guys let's, gonna retire here or this area i don't know i i don't or will you retire i don't want to i mean i'm 55 so i've got a ways to go i really like what i do and with with my role i i can really be doesn't really matter i don't have to be sitting here in the office to do it um, especially with technology and with the way we have the office set up, I'm really not important to the day-to-day -day operation of the business. So I can kind of, you know, be wherever. And you so can be on the boat and can be on business. the boat. And we've done it. We've done it. I mean, we spent three weeks last year, and I've got a, a Wi-Fi booster on the boat, and usually we can plug. We can be an anchor somewhere, you know, on the chop tanker. Chester River or wherever and and tap into somebody's uh, Wi-Fi that's not, you know, <laughs> password protected and and do email or so. Yeah, it, it's kind of nice, but I love what I do. I don't I don't want to. I'm nowhere near retirement. Um, and, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a really good economic environment and it looks like it's going to slow down a little later in the year, maybe into 2020 and then but I, I think we're in a good position now to, um, you know, weather anything that would happen short of another, you know, Great Depression. Right. And um, so, yeah, that's where we're heading. Well, Bruce, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. I think it's been interesting to hear a different type of industry that I, I'm not real familiar with. And so it's been, been fascinating. Great. Well, yeah. thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Conrad. Thank you. Thanks, Bruce, for spending time with me on today's program. I really enjoyed our conversation and looking forward to connecting with you again soon. So be sure to tune in next time for an interview with an amazing human being. Judy Robinette is a connector. She's an expert on connecting startup businesses to investors. In fact, she's written a couple of books about it. Her most recent book is called Crack the Funding Code, How Investors Think and What They Need to Hear to Fund Your Startup. And her previous book is was called How to Be a Power Connector, the 550 and 150 rule. I had the privilege of recording an interview with her recently, and our conversation was amazing. So be sure to tune in next week for this inspirational and informative interview. The My Story Podcast is produced by Conjo Studios, an award-winning video production company whose focus is helping you tell your story. 
visit conjostudios.com, click on the blue Get a Quote button, and let them know what you need. Then watch your stress melt away as their team does the magic of producing your next video or film project. That's conjostudios.com, telling stories that matter. If you like the music from today's show, it's from my friend Drew Davidson. Go to drewdavidson.com or search for him on iTunes or Spotify and you can get all his music. Last, if you have an idea for an interview you'd like to hear, send me a message and I'll see what I can do. Thanks so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on the My Story Podcast. Podcast.